Uh, in his book on humility, John Dixon tells the story of Sir Edmund Hillary. In 1953, Hillary conquered Mount Everest, uh, but years later, on one of his trips back to the Himalayas, Hillary was spotted by a group of tourist climbers. Of course, they beg Hillary for a photo. And after accepting, they put Hillary in the middle, they hand him an ice pick so he should kind of look the part with the rest of the climbers, and they set up for the photograph. But as that happens, another climber passes by, and not recognising the man at the centre, strides up to Hillary, saying, excuse me, that's not how you hold an ice pick. (laughs) Everyone stands around amazed, because Hillary thanks the man, lets him adjust the pick, and happily goes on with the photograph. Now, how would have you reacted if you were part of that group? How would have you reacted? In awe of Hillary? Maybe appalled at this overconfident climber? Probably both. I mean, you can probably see me yelling out, you know who you're talking to, right? You see, there's something about arrogance, isn't there? There's something about pride that we just don't like. See, pride, we're repelled by it. But at the same time, when we see humility, when we see people like Hillary, our mouths drop. You see, humility is attractive, And that's why I think Philippians 2, 4 to 11 today should just wow us. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're not yet a follower of Jesus, these rich and well-known verses show us the beauty of Christ, don't they? And I think Paul is attempting to wow us, to wow us and the Philippians into humility. He attempts to attract us towards Christ's life by detailing his life, death and exaltation. And if you've been following along this series through Philippians, you'll know why living humble lives is so crucial for the Philippians and for you and I as well. You see, God's churches in Philippi, they are facing opposition to the gospel, aren't they? We've seen that. And their chief gospel partner, Paul, he's in prison and some of their best ministry workers have been sick and unable to return home. Things are complicated and the quickest path to division to distance, to coldness, is a small dose of pride mixed with selfishness. The Philippians are like any church community which could fracture because its people want everything to orbit around them. And so what's going to bring God's people together? What's going to immunise them against division? Well, it's this Christ-modelled, spirit-enabled humility that we see in Philippians 2. And believe it or not, this is the answer for us as well. You see, at some point or another, our relationships here are most likely going to be affected by the disease of pride and the disease of arrogance. One, just think about it, one act of selfishness could break a friendship. One arrogant comment could wound your entire growth group for the whole year. 
One tyrant husband or wife could fracture the whole family's joy and happiness. One self-absorbed leader could create a bottleneck in ministry to prevent the gospel going out. But you see, Philippians 2, it reminds us that togetherness comes through humility. Fractured relationships are avoided and they're healed by thinking the way Christ does. And so Paul Philippians 2, he's set on making our jaws drop so that we might embody humility here and now. So if you have your Bibles this morning, keep them open with you as we get to be wowed by three things. We get to be wowed by three things in Philippians 2. The first thing we're meant to be wowed by is Paul's command in verse 5. Take a look at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You see, for Paul, the surefire way to making sure that there's no disunity in the church is to think the way Christ thinks. It's to have the mind of Christ in us. And that should make us pause for a minute. You see, we're being called to let our glorious Saviour's mind dwell in us. That's amazing. We get to let his mind tick and talk in us. Throughout the letter, Paul uses this word for mind a fair bit. You see it in chapter 1, verse 7, uh, where he describes his love feelings for the Philippians. You see it in 2, 2, uh, where he uses it to call the church to come together in the same thinking. You see it in 3.19, where he calls them not to uh, desire the earthly things. Uh, And then in 4.2, Paul calls uh, two uh, gospel ministry workers uh, to get on and be united in the work. You see, throughout the book, the mind, it's code for our thoughts, our feelings, our attitudes, uh, our resolution, our focus, our commitment. And so in verse 5, Paul demands that the mind of Christ, the mind of our Saviour and God should infiltrate and dominate the entire community of the church. Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. That's massive. It's massive because Christ's mindset is meant to work its way into the board of elders. It's meant to work its way into our staff team, into our Sunday gatherings here, into each one of us. It's meant to infiltrate our marriages and families. Mum and Dad, you're meant to walk home after work with this mindset. You're meant to open the door with this mindset as you go in. Kids, you're meant to take it to your soccer games on Saturdays. Young workers, you're meant to take it to your casual jobs. Teenagers, to your schools. Every relationship, work, study, play, siblings, in-laws, grandparents, friends, colleagues, every relationship is meant to be guided by the mind of Christ and especially amongst the church. You see, Christ's mind is to dwell in us and shape our entire existence. But that begs the question, doesn't it? How does Christ think? What sort of mind is meant to be in us? One of my favourite TV shows uh, in 2020 was The Last Dance. I was in lockdown uh, and so Beck and I were like, we need something. And so that was the series we picked. It's a compelling portrait of one of basketball's greatest teams, the Chicago Bulls, led by none other than Michael Jordan. And what I loved about the series was that it takes us into the very mind of Jordan. 
You get to see his mind, his thoughts and attitudes. You get to see his focus and determination. And at the end of it, you finish the series and you just can't help but wish you had that sort of mind. I think that's what Paul's doing here. Using what was most likely a a hymn or a song, throughout the rest of these verses, Paul gives the Philippians and us a glimpse into Christ's mindset, into his career, if you will. And so that brings us to the second thing we're meant to be wowed by, Christ's self-lowering. We're meant to be wowed by Christ's self-lowering. Notice where the song begins. Take a look at verse 6. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Paul's song begins with Jesus' attitude as he dwelled with the Father in heaven. To put it simply, you could summarise this by saying that God the Son didn't think to be selfish. You see, although Jesus was in very nature God, arrayed with all the glory and majesty of being God, he did not think of his status or his glory or his divine equality as something to use for himself. Now, don't get me wrong, it was right for Jesus to be arrayed with glory, but Jesus didn't use what was rightfully his. He did not think to be selfish. And notice where Paul's song goes. God the Son didn't think to be selfish, rather, he thought to be selfless. Take a look at verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In his descent from heaven, the Son of God empties himself or makes himself nothing. Here, Paul's point is not that Jesus emptied himself of his divine essence, but rather, not because he was always God and always is God, but rather Jesus empties himself of his divine privilege and becomes a servant, literally a slave. Now, these verses, when I read them, they're really tricky to kind of picture what's going on and no illustration really does it justice, but it's kind of like the TV show Undercover Boss. Uh, you Maybe you've seen it. Each episode features a high-ranking executive or the owner of a corporation going undercover as an entry-level employee in their company. The executives, see, they alter their appearance, they hide their glory uh, by taking on the form of a regular employee. You can imagine it. They're not in suits and tie. No, they're in, I don't know, Macca's uniform. You see, that's undercover boss. And Jesus Christ was and is always God the Son. But he empties himself of his divine privilege and glory and becomes a servant. He is selfless. Maybe a better illustration is what the Bible gives us. You see, one of the greatest accounts of Jesus is famously John chapter 13. Hours before his death, Jesus serves his disciples by washing their feet. And I just want you to sit back and hear this account. It's beautiful because John records every single move that Jesus makes. John 13, verse 4. So Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, 
he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Redirected power, selflessness. The one seated on the throne leaves his place. The king becomes the slave. The one who's rich becomes poor. The one who is surrounded by inapproachable light is surrounded by stinky, dirty feet. The one who was high goes low. But notice that Paul's song says that Christ goes even lower. Take a look at verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. You see, here the mind of Christ is set on obeying his heavenly Father to the point of death. His mind is fixated on submitting to the Father's interests, not his own. And notice that this obedience, it's not forced or coerced or involuntary. No, he humiliates, it says, he humiliates himself. This part of the song echoes Jesus' own words in the gospel, doesn't it? John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Or Luke 22, 42, when he's in the garden, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my, not my will, but yours be done. You see, the son goes low. He willingly puts his life at risk in obedience to his father. And Christ's low going reaches its culmination in the song as Paul includes just three words. Even death, cross. Look at the end of verse 8. Even death on a cross. In his book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott, he speaks about the place of the cross in Roman culture. In short, death upon the cross was the greatest mark of shame. It was so shameful, in fact, that Roman citizens who supposedly created crucifixion and perfected crucifixion were actually exempt from it. And on this, po this point, Stott quotes a Roman writer named Cicero who lived 43 years before Jesus. Cicero writes, To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. You see, Cicero's point is that death on a cross is disgusting. It's a disgrace. It's an embarrassment. It's something you turn your face from. It's the epitome of shame. You see, it's no wonder that in the Gospels, Jesus' disciples fled. It's no wonder that they deserted him. It's no wonder that they lost all hope because God's servant, as Isaiah says, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide 
their faces. See, this is the low-going of Christ, even death on a cross. Cicero thought that it was unthinkable that a Roman citizen should die on a cross, but how much more the one who was in very nature God? You see, how is it that we can utter God and emptied himself in the same sentence? How is it that we're allowed to say God and slave, God and death, God and cross? Surely we're not allowed to. But we can. We can because this is our salvation. This is humility. It is voluntary, power-redirecting, status-forgoing, resource-giving, life-draining, shame-bearing service of the other. This is the mind of Christ. And so what might that look like for us? What might humility look like for us here today? Well, I think Christ-given humility and, uh, will come in different shapes and sizes. It will look different for each one of us. It will look different for different people in different moments. But I just want you to get a sense of the impression that Christ-given humility has. You see, it will give you the impression that your interests are more important than mine. You're more valuable than me. I'm in this for you. Christ-given humility sounds like I might be wrong. There might actually be a better way of doing this. I disagree with you, but I'm willing to listen. Let's do it your way. You see, Christ-given humility, it looks like using any bit of your power, any bit of your energy or your resources to serve others. It looks like the kind of person who has no regard and no care and no fuss about their own status and their own glory. That's how it feels. But on the flip side of all that, Christ-given humility will mean taking arrogance seriously. You see, those with the mind of Christ don't tolerate pride. We don't tolerate it in ourselves, in others, or even as a community. You see, pride, it makes us look ugly. Pride, it restricts us from relationships. It makes us lonely. It separates us from others and from God. And so having the mind of Christ means killing off pride by turning to Jesus so that we might be brought closer together. Christ-given humility will appear in multiple shapes and sizes, big acts, small acts, but it will, and it will have no time for arrogance. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine that here, amongst us? We'd really stand out, wouldn't we? We'd stand out like stars, as Paul says later in this chapter. You see, we'd really come toward each other, wouldn't we? Our relationships would be mended, wouldn't they? We'd really feel and sense that we are here together 
for the gospel. But gosh, it'd be a lot of effort, wouldn't it? Already this just feels tiring and exhausting. Because it is, isn't it? Humility costs us. It costs us so much. And so at this point, it might be helpful to remind ourselves of the obvious. Christ-given humility is beautiful, but it's really, really hard. For me, all it takes is an unproductive day at the office uh, or someone to cut me off on the way home uh, or, I don't know, just a few late nights, uh, uh, one after the other, to want to just plonk myself on the couch and yell, no, every single time I get asked to do something. You see, that's not to mention my own lust for power, my own wanting to get it my way, my own self-absorbed heart and will. You see, I don't know what it is, but I'm always surprised that the world just doesn't orbit around me. Like, this is how hard humility is. Going low for other people does not come naturally. It requires suffering and dying to self and actually thinking about other people for once. It requires God's spirit to transform us. But that's why it's so good that Paul's song doesn't end at verse 8. You see, from verses 9 to 11, if you have a look, the focus of Paul's song shifts. It moves from God the Son's willing descent to the cross to God the Father's exaltation of the Son. It shifts its focus from humiliation to exaltation. And that brings us to our third and final thing we're meant to be wowed by, the Son's exaltation. Look at the beginning of verse 9. Therefore God exalted him. What's the Father's response to the mind of Christ? What's the Father's response to his humility? It's exaltation. It's the bestowing of honour and glory and victory. You see, Jesus didn't lose out when he humbled himself. All this status foregoing, power redirecting, it didn't end in loss, but in gain. Not in shame, but in honour. Costly, yes. Difficult, yes. Fruitless, never. During our staff meeting this week, we looked at this passage and Hamish helpfully reminded us that you cannot lose with humility. You cannot lose with humility. And we see that so clearly in Christ here, don't we? Christ does not lose when he denies himself. He gains. Yes, he gives, he gives, he gives, but then he gains. And notice how much he gains. Verse 9 and 11, take a look. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The song tells us that Christ gains. He literally is graced by the Father. He is graced by the Father with a seat higher than any other, with a name above every other. In these verses, the song seems to be echoing the words of Isaiah chapter 45. In Isaiah 45, the Lord declares that he is God alone. Just listen to it. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. 
By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. Isaiah 45 helps us understand the exaltation of Christ. Jesus Christ has been exalted and now bears the name of Yahweh, of Lord, of God, of Lord Jesus Christ. There is no higher honour. There is no higher place. There's no greater gift. The Son is installed as the cosmic king. That should wow us. We should be in awe of that. We should be in awe of him. Over the past month, Queen Elizabeth, she's had a lot of attention in the media lately, hasn't she? Because she contracted COVID-19. And so naturally, the Queen, of course, she's not taking any visitors. Sorry, you can't go visit her. But say if you did want to visit her, this is the certain etiquette that you'd have to follow. Here's just a taste. When writing to the Queen, you should close with the phrase, I have the honour to be, Madam, your Majesty's humble and obedient servant. I can't imagine an Australian writing that ever. Um, (laughs) But here's some more etiquette. When meeting the Queen, men should make a neck bow from the head only, while women make a small curtsy. When speaking to the Queen, you should call her your Majesty or Ma'am on subsequent mentions. When dining with the Queen, if she is standing, you should too. You can sit only once she is seated. Uh, And when you're eating with her, you're also supposed to stop eating when the Queen does. You see, there's all sorts of royal etiquette that the Queen deserves. And that's even more the case for the Lord Jesus Christ, right? In the exaltation of Christ, God the Father prescribes a royal etiquette for every one of us. It means we change our posture. We bend our knee. It means we change our language. We address him as Lord Jesus Christ. We stoop in awe, in fear, in trembling, because we give glory to the Son and we give glory to the Father. You see, this is how much the Son graciously gains from the Father. This is the payoff for his low going. He gets a royal place, a royal name and a royal etiquette to which we subjects need to obey. It's a reminder that Christ did not lose with humility. And so that's an encouragement to us that we won't either. You see, for all your low going and all your selfless service, you won't lose out. Sure, we're not exalted in the same way as the Son. Sure, we're not given the same name or the same throne as the Son. But the New Testament is so clear that we will be exalted. As Paul declares, if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. Or as Jesus declares... All those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, if you're tired of serving, if you think this is just far too much, if you're worn out, 
if you need re-energising or re-enticing, here it is. You will not lose out. You will gain in Christ. Because Christ has gained, because you can't lose out with humility. See, we should be wowed by Christ's exaltation because it's a reminder that we get, in some way, what he has. Hillary's humility was beautiful, wasn't it? Christ's humility here in Philippians 2, even more so. We should be wowed by the fact that we get to share in our Saviour's mind. We should be wowed by the self-lowering of Christ. We should be wowed by his exaltation, because it's Christ-given, spirit-enabled humility which will bring us together. It will heal our diseases of division. It'll bolster us against pride. It will rejoin the fractures which afflict our closest relationships. It'll turn us outward instead of being inward. The plague of division and pride will be overcome. And to conclude with, I think, John Calvin's words, which I think he's right, he says, the diseases Paul brings forward have one remedy, humility. Humility.